I'm Philippa Tolley, and this RNZ Insight program looks at the plight of Myanmar's Rohingya people. Scenes of rickety fishing boats loaded down with refugees brought the fate of some of Myanmar's Rohingya people to the world in 2015. The desperation that drove people to take to the sea to escape Myanmar had its roots in sectarian violence, when clashes between Buddhists and Muslims in the Rakhine state killed dozens and ended up with the Rohingya driven from their homes. Since then, most have spent a dismal period in refugee camps, stripped of their rights and wary of continuing and possibly increasing anti-Muslim feelings. Insight travels to the Rakhine state in western Myanmar to explore future prospects for the Rohingya as the nation itself welcomes a new government. March 2012 in the western Rakhine state of Myanmar erupts into violence around the provincial capital Sitwe. The majority Buddhist and the minority Muslim populations clashed in a confrontation which left several dead and scores of homes burning. Sparked by the rape and murder of a Buddhist woman by Muslim men, the fighting was a culmination of tensions that had built up across the state over years. Four years on and the tensions remain. 120,000 Rohingya still live in dire conditions in refugee camps, with the possibility of more sectarian violence still very real. But how and why did two populations that once lived side by side take up arms against each other? I'm Graham Acton and for this insight I visited Myanmar to find out whether with a change of government there might be a solution to the ethnic conflict that has led to many Rohingya Muslims fleeing the country or dying in the attempt. The Rohingya are a specific Muslim minority, many the descendants of immigrants who came into Myanmar during the 18th and 19th centuries from neighbouring Bengal, now Bangladesh. According to the UN, the discrimination and abuse suffered by these people includes arbitrary detention, forced labour, sexual violence and restrictions on free movement. More than a million people of the more than 51 million people living in Myanmar identify as Rohingya. But they've had full citizenship taken away. They do not vote or exercise any other citizenship rights, such as the development of their culture and religion as laid out in the country's constitution. In Rakhine State, they are often jobless, homeless and penniless, having lost virtually everything after the violent conflict in 2012. The situation has been likened to a biological genocide by a Yale University study on the conditions faced by the Rohingya held in the camps in Rakhine State. Some of the authorities in Myanmar are accused by the report's authors of showing what they described as genocidal intent by providing limited access to food, sanitation, medical care and education. People in Rakhine State have been having a tough time, both Muslims and Buddhists, pretty much forever. Dr Nick Farrelly is with the Myanmar Study Centre at the Australian National University in Canberra. This is just about the most isolated corner of Myanmar. It is the second poorest state. It is also the part of Myanmar that most other Myanmar citizens have the least exposure to. It is cut off geographically and to an extent culturally from much of what is judged mainstream in Myanmar society. The establishment of camps for internally displaced persons followed the violence in 2012, 
when the military government decided the camps should be set up to protect those Muslims who lost their homes in the rioting. The IDP camps in turn brought the United Nations to Sitwe, the shabby state capital on the northwest coast of Myanmar, where aid agencies are attempting to help both Buddhist and Muslim alike. The UN's resident coordinator for the Rakhine state is New Zealander Chris Carter. Once a Labour MP, he now deals with the myriad problems faced by both sides in Rakhine. Well, fundamentally in Rakhine, it's, it's an intersecting series of crises. Number one is the 1.3 million people who are stateless. This is the largest group of stateless people in the world. They are uh, Muslims of South Asian origin. Uh, some of them call themselves Rohingya. Fundamentally, it's this large group of stateless people who uh, live in acute poverty, and at the moment, uh, many of them, about approximately 135,000, are living in what we call IDP. It is um, internally displaced people's camps. Uh, so a large group of internal refugees who are being supported by the, by the international community, primarily the UN. And for Chris Carter, the key to sorting out the issue is to allow the Rohingya to move out of the state to find work. Around 25,000 Rohingya have left the camps in the last year, returning to the communities they fled during the sectarian violence in 2012. However, the problem is that the Rohingya remain almost universally regarded by the mainstream Myanmar population as illegal immigrants, and referred to as Bengalis, or even worse, by an insulting reference to their dark skins. The um, Muslim community primarily in Rakhine identifies as Rohingya, uh, this is a, a description, uh, an identity that is rejected by the Rakhine uh, Buddhist majority in, in Rakhine because they say it denotes that these people have a legitimate place and a long history in Rakhine. And they, they say that, that the majority of Muslims living in Rakhine are illegal immigrants from Bangladesh and so therefore should be described as Bengali. So for members of the Muslim community that I find accepting this term Bengali would denote that they were outsiders and they had no legitimate right to be in Rakhine or Myanmar. So there's been a standoff over the name. It seems to me, as the senior most UN official in Rakhine, engaging all the time with, with civil society, with state government, with union officials, that there is some room to be flexible around the name that many people in the Muslim community may be prepared to accept another name, not Bengali, but another name, uh, perhaps Myanmar Muslim. The Rakhine state was originally called Arakan, but its name was changed by the military government in 1989. It's the region still regarded as home to the purest expression of the Buddhist faith in the country and has a colourful history around the ancient Arakan capital Mor'u, which legend has it was visited by the Buddha himself. And it's a region where Buddhists and Muslims have lived side by side with little trouble in the past. But Rakhine politics have been influenced in recent years by the ANP, the Arakan National Party, a nationalist political grouping which warns against the impending rise of the Islamic faith in Rakhine and the loss of Buddhist land and livelihoods to the so-called illegal immigrants. Jozo U is an ANP member of the Rakhine State Parliament who rode into power on the back of a rising sense of Buddhist nationalism in the state. He was also one of a number of Buddhist politicians arrested following the rioting in 2012. He says the Muslim threat in Rakhine is real. The Rohingya are invaders. And they claim to be an ethnic group by invented name. We know that it is what is coming next. We are threatened. 
We are threatened. Everybody feel it. He says the ANP has to be prepared for further conflict with Muslims across the Rakhine state. And he rejects, for example, the idea of dividing the Rakhine in half, giving the Muslim population the northern region, which is closest to Bangladesh and already has a 95% Muslim population. This is our land. So if uh, 500,000 Bengali people from Bangladesh came to New Zealand and have a clash and kill them, kill uh, the others, and after that, international community intervened and said, you, New Zealand, should be divided. One for Muslim and one for original New Zealander. You should be happy. Yeah. International community, we feel the same. It's not just, it's not fair. The strident nationalism of the Arakan National Party is supported and encouraged by Myanmar's most fervent and outspoken critic of the Muslim minority. Here's Ashen Waratu, a hardline nationalist monk with a simple and populist message. You can be full of love and kindness, but you cannot sleep next to a mad dog. There has been evidence about their invasion. They have announced the Rakhine state will be Rohingya country. They are planning to declare the Rakhine state as an Islamic state. So the conflict in Rakhine is not a conflict between ethnic groups, it is a jihad war. Sadly, the political parties are ignoring that. Understand well, the Rakhine issue is the whole country's issue. Protect the Rakhine people and the Rakhine state. It is high time we protected the motherland Myanmar by protecting the Rakhine. Muratu is joined by the Mabata, or the Committee for the Protection of Nationality and Religion, in whipping up an anti-Muslim rhetoric that has translated into violence at times. He's also been involved in promoting controversial laws drafted by the Burmese Ministry of Religious Affairs, designed to control religious conversion and interfaith marriage, and encourage monogamy and population control measures. The first such law, passed last year, allows state governments to force women to have a 36-month gap between children. It's widely seen as specifically drawn up for use in the Rakhine state. His rhetoric warns of Rohingya merchants receiving cash injections from the Middle East, of Muslims infiltrating the NLD, outbreeding the Buddhists, stealing away Buddhist women, overwhelming politics and turning Myanmar into an Islamic state. The Myanmar analyst Nick Farrelly says the strength of Waratu and the other Buddhist nationalists is rising as the military administration steps aside for the new democratic NLD government. Uh, he spent a great deal of time in jail under the military regime. Uh, it has only been uh, since this period of liberalisation um, that a, a number of people holding relatively extreme views have been given a chance uh, to get their message out to wider audiences. Much of that is now amplified by what goes on in online spaces. We shouldn't forget that until 2012, there was basically no uncensored media in this country. Yi Tun works with the Justice Trust, a US-based human rights organisation. She points out the Rohingya are just the latest political football being used to whip up Buddhist nationalism and support for the army. 
that's the thing about the recent ultranationalism. It's mm-hmm. that Burma has had coexistence with multi-faith people mm-hmm. for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But the alienation of a demonizing of another, attributing them as being the reason for the problem and scaremongering, fear-mongering mm-hmm. is a very effective campaign. It's done not just here in Myanmar, it's done in regionally if you look anywhere. I think there's a real tension between Arakanese and Rohingyas. That's, I'm not denying that, but I think what has happened since then, this sort of ultra-nationalist, anti-Muslim attitude, that's a recent phenomenon. That used to, I mean, there, there was always a degree of racism, but not to this level. I'm in a small boat crossing a tidal river just outside Sitway. All around are dry rice paddies and the bizarre sight of quite large boats left high and dry on the banks after Cyclone Nargis seven years ago. I'm here to see the Rohingya Muslims. Mohammed Usman is the village chief. He says while his people have not been forced into an internally displaced persons camp, their situation is still desperate. Forcibly relocated outside Sitway after the 2012 riots, this village was one that stood up to the Buddhist rioters, but is now forced to accept the label Bengali by the government. He says his village is pretty much on its own and is paying the price for standing up to the Rakhine mob in 2012. This village, their village, is surrounded by the Rakhine's, uh, so many Rakhine villages. So there are very few people here uh, comparing with the Rakhine's nearby uh, them. So the better things to change the, the situation of their village is to have, uh, how should I, to be able to have the right of education for their uh, children and to have free movement and to have the medical care because uh, a lot of patients are not having medical care and they are dying one day by day. And Mohammed Usman says the discrimination against his fellow Muslims is causing huge suffering. Rakhine's government says uh, about them that they are not citizens of Myanmar, they migrated here from Bangladesh. Rohingya Muslims who have been living here since many, many years ago, they are originally uh, from here. So this is just uh, discriminating, discrimination on the Rohingya people that uh, keeping away them uh, from having from the right of the citizens. So they were not also allowed to take part in the election. They could lead the boot. So this is the discrimination on the Rohingya Muslims. And I asked him what he would say to NLD leader Aung San Suu Kyi. Mm, so if she treats all the publics uh, without discrimination, if she gives equal rights, that will be better. So, But he said that he, he doesn't think that Aung San Suu Kyi can do under the democratic law like other country because uh, the military government is still uh, control the co- the country she give full right equal right to the muslims without uh, doing any discrimination that would be better for for them for all the muslims but if she also do discrimination so there will be they have no hope for them 
Back in Sitway, the streets are deserted by 10pm, as the curfew comes down on a town where the shadow of ethnic violence has yet to completely recede. Next morning, I'm taking through numerous police checkpoints to an IDP camp on the outskirts of town, surrounded by land confiscated from local Muslims by the Tatmadaw, the National Army. It's just one of a network of camps in the area, housing tens of thousands of Rohingya men, women and children. Jola Ong is a Rohingya community leader. Born in Myanmar, he attended university in Yangon and worked as a lawyer before becoming involved in politics. His activities eventually landing him in prison. In June 2012, he was one of hundreds of Muslims who lost everything in Sitway, including his house and a number of others he owned in the town. This is the very uh, key point for us, that uh, when the East Pakistan was existing, at that time they didn't call us East Pakistani. This kind of, all these lands belong by Rohingyas. These are also, the uh, valleys are also belongs by Rohingyas. After this conflict, they want to, what is called, loot every, uh, all properties from us. Also, this was also encouraged by the government. Jawla Ong says Rohingya who have lived in Rakhine for generations are now caught up in a nightmare where they are trapped in squalid camps in chronic poverty without access to proper medical care, stripped of their rights and with no options left. And water and sanitation is not good and everything is getting ruined so that they are living like this. I have my cousin, medical doctor, I can call them here but it is a very difficult to come here and go back again because they are very, uh, what is called, discriminate in, at airport. When they saw a Muslim, uh, they will ask so many kind of questions and also they make so many pro problems at airport. And the level of distrust between communities is evident in his report of what he believes are killings in the Sitway Hospital. Yes, some also dying, but they, they doesn't want to go to hospital because so many persons, uh, ladies were killed there in hospital and also the newborn child also killed there. So they, no one want to go to the hospital. Kill, killed in the hospital? Who by? <laughs> who by? Who killed them? Nurse. After giving birth the child and then the, at night uh, for the... Vaccination, uh, they called, uh, they said that the, the, uh, we have to inject as vac for vaccination and then kill. So how can you prove this thing? In response to the suggestion that medical staff in Sitway are responsible for the deaths of babies and mothers, Amnesty International says... Research shows that pregnant Rohingya women face severe obstacles in accessing adequate health care and medical treatment, in large part owing to restrictions on their freedom of movement and to restricted access for humanitarian organisations in Rakhine State. Amnesty has spoken to Rohingya women who say they fear going to hospitals because of rumours they have heard and delay seeking treatment there as a result, even when there were possibly serious complications with their pregnancies. Despite the medical challenges faced by the camps, Jo La Ong says it is education that is the key to the future of the Rohingya. Education is first priority for our community. Why I want to explain you. For medical care, 500 to 1,000 uh, patients can be dying within one year for uh, lack of medicine. But after 10 years, this community will die 
whole community will die without education. Despite their determination to remain, it's hardly surprising that many thousands of Rohingya have risked their lives on the people smuggling vessels sailing from Sitwe south towards Thailand, Malaysia and Indonesia. Although there is no solid data on just how many people have fled Rakhine State by sea, the UN has put the figure at about 25,000 over the last year, with more than 10 times that number of Rakhine Buddhists leaving the state in recent years for a better life in other parts of Myanmar or in Thailand. The camp itself is an overcrowded maze of bamboo huts and dusty paths which were set up as a temporary measure in 2013, but slowly seem to have become a permanent situation. There are small shops selling firewood, tiny vegetables and dried noodles. And there are children, dozens of children under 10 years. The call is, we are the Rohingya children. Their parents look on, hoping they will not grow to become the next generation of Rohingya boat people. Can I see inside? This camp has a small schoolroom with no furniture. My guide Saeed explains the curriculum. What do, what do they learn? Which subjects? Yeah, then they, they teach uh, Myanmar, English, mm -hmm. and mathematics, geography, history. But then after that, what happens? After grade after uh, after completing the grade four, then uh, some of them joined. There is only one school here in in the whole Muslim area, only uh, high school. So they joined high school and they started. They start from grade five, and actually most of them are not able to go to 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 join the high school because it is far away from them and they are not able to go there because of transportation and And Saeed also explained that the boat people issue of 2015 is over, for now at least. Are the boats continuing to go now? No, people are not leaving at the moment because actually the smugglers who used to come here who make people to leave the country. Mm. So the, there is a connection between the smugglers and the human traffickers in Thailand. So. At the moment there is no trafficker and smugglers are not coming and they are not making people, they are not organizing people. And also people are just watching the result of the political change because they think that maybe under the new government maybe the situation will be better. So as the Rohingya wait in the camps, amid a rising tide of Buddhist nationalism and a continuing and entrenched ethnic standoff in the Rakhine state, the new government of Aung San Suu Kyi has moved carefully through an election process where both issues were referred to only obliquely, for fear of alienating their Buddhist support base. Buddhism as a religion and philosophy has little to say about politics, but in Myanmar it has become tied in with hardline prejudices and the ultra-nationalists. The current resurgence of racism is a direct result of half a century of military rule, where Buddhism has crystallised a specific view of what Myanmar's national culture looks like. The dominant Burma population equates Buddhism with a true Burmese national identity. Aung San Suu Kyi has continually pushed the Rohingya issue into the lap of the military government over the last five years. Here she is speaking at the Tokyo Press Club in 2013. With regard to whether or not the Rohingya are citizens of the country, 
That depends very much on whether or not they meet the requirements of the citizen laws, citizenship laws as they now exist. There are those who say that the Burmese citizenship laws, which, were, which are based on the 1982 law, are not fair. Now, that is a different question. Every country has a responsibility to consider the possibility that the laws are not in keeping with international standards. And this, the Burmese government should have the courage to do, to face the issue of citizenship fairly. But the question of the NLD government's responsiveness remains open, as does the attention it will pay to the development of its regions in order to reconcile the other restive states embroiled in ethnic conflicts. Rohingya have now been issued a pink partial citizenship card to replace the original white ones, amid a so-called citizenship verification program currently underway across the country. The catch is Rohingya must accept the classification Bengali. Meanwhile, the head of Myanmar's military last month urged ASEAN countries to help with what he described as Myanmar's terrorist Rohingya problem. For Myanmar analyst Nick Farrelly, the solution to the issue must be an international one, involving Muslim nations in Asia and the Middle East. So what we have is a shatter zone, a sphere of interaction where Buddhists and Muslims live on both sides of the border between southeastern Bangladesh uh, and that part of northern Rakhine State. People have, I'm sure, flowed backwards and forwards across what is now the national frontier uh, basically since time immemorial. If you were imagining a, a robust outcome that might allow the people in those parts of these two countries to live together relatively harmoniously uh, and to develop their own communities in terms of their cultures, their economies, their politics and so much more, it's probably going to require uh, some much greater effort on the part of the Bangladesh and the Myanmar governments to do things together and to go to the world and say, we have this problem. But human rights activist Yi Tun has a word of caution when human catastrophe becomes a political weapon for the opponents of the new government. And I think that, that while this is one uh, horrible crisis that's happening, there's a lot of fundamental issues around human rights that's ongoing. That is just one crisis. Things like the constitutional trap that entrenches military is a huge issue. Land rights, which probably affects even more larger groups, subset of the population, uh, ability for basic fundamental freedoms of being expressed is still very contested. So for the NLD, they have to try and balance pushing for the democratic agenda without alienating, which I'll admit, most some majority of Burmese population that are uneducated, uh, unsophisticated. There is a degree of racism, but with the Rohingya crisis, it's you're looking at a state which is the poorest state in Myanmar, and the people who belong to that, Rakhines themselves, are marginalized. So you've got two very distinct subset of population. They're fighting for limited resource, limited rights in an already bad situation. And as the new NLD government settles in to deal with its shopping list of urgent national issues, Nick Farrelly believes the greater involvement of international agencies and Islamic governments around the world has the potential to achieve something tangible in the new Myanmar. I wonder whether either Myanmar or Bangladesh would see something like what I'm proposing as in their long-term interests, mostly because they will need to maintain the support of their 
respective publics and in both Bangladesh and Myanmar any implication that resources are being diverted for the purposes of supporting the Rohingya are politically very difficult to justify. I'm Graham Acton and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to get in contact, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send a tweet. Our Twitter handle is at insightrnz.